0: And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now, by your grace, that you would show us Christ, that you would speak to us. Father, we ask that you would show us your glory from the pages of Scripture in the face of Christ. By the ministry of your Spirit, teach us, be with my mouth and be with our ears. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This has probably been the hardest two-plus years of pastoral ministry for many of us. I know it has been for me. I think I was at the Feed My Sheep conference in Atlanta at Mount Vernon Baptist Church when I heard a brother describe it as uh, decision fatigue. I don't know if you remember being a part of the leadership team in your church or maybe even being a member of the church where decisions had to be made almost on a weekly basis about how to respond to the global pandemic. And there was a weightiness to the decisions that were being made. And you you add to the global pandemic the political tension and then the racial tensions that were going on and leadership became very, very difficult just trying to keep the flock of God together. And then you add to that Christianity Today's podcast on the rise and fall of Mars Hill and all of a sudden you have a new vocabulary introduced to evangelicalism of spiritual abuse. I say new not in that that it was new or the concept was new, but it it became prominent in evangelicals' minds and in church members' minds. One of my concerns at that point is that this now will become a weapon in the hands of some members. You can imagine a, a member that's being led through the process of church discipline, just claiming spiritual abuse. Now, of course, there is such a thing as spiritual abuse. Leadership is hard. Uh, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life is parenting. Pastoring comes to a close second because in many ways it's like parenting. You know, I have five girls at home and, and we have 500 members at High Point. And so it sometimes feels like the same kind of, of weight and the same kind of decision-making process and trying to keep everyone together, trying to move everyone in the same direction. And if you're like I am, it's been it's been a weighty season, and frankly, I have not I have not gained confidence in these last two years. I have lost confidence these last two years in my own ability to lead a congregation. I've I've doubted myself. I questioned myself. I've even wondered: Does this church need someone else? And I think that's true. Over the last few weeks, we have had one prominent. A church uh, pulpit uh, become vacant because of an announcement of retirement uh, we had one church that uh, we remember seeing come into the city and, and being planted just announced they were closing their doors and I can imagine that that story could be multiplied over and over and over again so I I know how hard it is I I got to the point last year what where, where I had to ask our elders just for the month of July off, to just go and be alone and just think and pray uh, with my wife. And so I understand the weightiness of that. But one of the things I want to do in encouraging us is is the reality that we still have to lead. And and in these circumstances, we can respond in sinful ways. One of the ways that we respond in a sinful way during times like these, like crises, is, is... overbearing control we don't want to lose control we want to try to 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 lead everyone in the same direction but we want to control and we become overbearing and we become dictatorial but of course another sinful response is that uh, we're passive we just kind of put our our head down and our hands over and we don't want to make any decisions whatsoever and so what i want to do this This afternoon is talk about kingdom authority. What does biblical authority look like? What does kingdom authority look like? Um, Let me share with you a a story about Robertson McQuilkin because I think from a human perspective, this is such a beautiful and convicting uh, account for me. But this is a picture of what I'm calling kingdom authority. In 1990, uh, Robertson McQuilkin resigned from Columbia Bible College and Seminary because of his wife Muriel's health. She had developed Alzheimer's. And he wrote to the school publicly making this announcement, Recently it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time I am away from her. It is not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, That she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel. In sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years I would not be out of her debt. You know, I think this has direct bearing from from Bobby's talk just the reality of for for those of us who are in ministry if our identity is tied up in our pastoral ministry would we be able to make such a decision? I think it was so helpful for him to remind us that the greatest gifts that we have are in Christ, our dying and rising with Christ, our faith that we have in Christ, which is is a gift from God by his grace, and that life that we have in Christ. Everything else can go away. So how do we think about biblical leadership? How do we think about kingdom authority, godly authority? And here's what I propose to us. In the kingdom of God, authority is not characterized by domineering control, but by sacrificial service. Let me just say that one more time. In the kingdom of God, authority is not characterized by domineering control, but by sacrificial service. Look with me in verses 32 through 34. Here we'll see the self-sacrificing example of kingdom authority. Here we see Jesus, right? In verse 32, we read, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them. This is the third and final time in Mark's gospel where Jesus predicts what's going to happen to him. This is the fullest, uh, the fullest account. So there's no mystery as to where Jesus is going and what he is doing heading toward Jerusalem. And they're amazed at this. Jesus was determined to give his life as a sacrifice. Jesus' death was not accidental. This was not something that happened to him. Jesus put his face toward Jerusalem, and he knew exactly what was going to occur. Look at verses 33 and 34. It says, <clears throat> He knew what was going to happen, tell them what was happening to him, saying, see, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. So, so Jesus was not going into a situation where he was unaware. He knew exactly what he had come to do. This is, as I mentioned, Jesus' third and final and fullest prediction. And after each prediction, the disciples still don't understand, and so Jesus has to teach them. So we have a prediction and then teaching, prediction, teaching, and now a third time, prediction, and then teaching. He wants to help the twelve understand what it means to follow him. In other words, he wants them to understand discipleship that his death was no accident. It was no coincidence. It was the will of God to crush him, to crush the son. And this is what we see throughout the storyline of Scripture, don't we? In Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So even though we understand from the really the very beginning of Scripture, from Genesis, that God would have a son, the son who would come from the woman that would defeat the serpent, this son would take the throne, he would image God fully, even though we have that storyline unfolding in Scripture, and even though the Hebrews expected this to happen, that someone from David's line, from Abraham's line, from David's line, would come and would ascend to the throne of David, that the government would rest upon his shoulders, they were expecting that to happen, and that this king, anointed by God, would ascend to the throne, and he would vindicate the people of god and he would bring justice on behalf of the people of god and bring judgment that was the expectation what was not expected is that the king would ascend to the throne through suffering and through death and through resurrection and as we begin understanding the dynamics of the kingdom we begin to see this upside down inside out way of the heavenly kingdom it's exaltation through humiliation. Without shame, there is no glory. Without death, there is no crown. Without resurrection, there is no throne. And this is what Jesus begins to show us as he lives out his life. This is what I'm calling kingdom authority, exaltation through humiliation. And eternal reign through sacrifice, greatness through serving. But the disciples don't get it. They have not learned this lesson So they make an audacious request. Look at verses 35 through 41. Here we see, secondly, the self serving desire for earthly authority. The self serving desire for earthly authority. James and John's request here exposes their selfish, self serving desires. Verse 35 And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I don't know if you have children, but imagine your child comes up, Dad, I want you to do whatever you want. Whatever I ask, whatever I ask, I want you to do it. Now, I have five girls, and uh, I have a 22-year-old who was texting me right before, and she said, uh, hey, Dad, can we talk? I know she wants something. She's going to ask for something. She's the kind of child that would say, hey, Dad, I want you to do something for me. And I'm thinking, uh, what do you want? What is it that you want? This is, this is almost like they're asking Jesus, would you give us a blank check? We want you to do for us whatever we ask. And notice what they asked. Notice their request. Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, remember the context of this conversation. Jesus has just predicted his death and his resurrection. And so they're thinking ahead, and they want to share in Jesus' rule in the coming kingdom. Essentially, they want earthly authority. They want power. They want control. They want domination. They want to be a part of this power dynamic. And this is the great lie that we have seen from the very beginning, isn't it? The great lie that you deserve to be like God, that you can have power, you can have authority. This is what Satan said to Adam and Eve. God is holding out on you. This is a great temptation to be free from power in order to exercise power and control over others. And this is something that we have to constantly guard our hearts against. This, this idea that we want to be in charge, we want to be in control. And, and, and this is just natural to our fallen human nature, isn't it? This is what we see in little children when, when they fight one another. But this is what we see in the workplace, isn't it? The, the climb up the corporate ladder and the, the viciousness that happens in the workplace. People trying to climb over each other. Uh, we, we see this all around us, don't we? But as Bobby reminded us, that person has died in us right it's no longer we who live but Christ who lives in us but we have to constantly as Paul reminds the Ephesians and the Colossians we have to constantly renew our mind by putting that to death and putting on Christ constantly thinking about that but brothers especially those of us who are in pastoral ministry this is a temptation this is a real temptation a real temptation to exercise earthly control earthly power and so if you're here and you're not a pastor, you have to ask yourself, what is it that motivates you in the workplace? What is it? Why do you want that promotion? You know, why, why do you want those privileges? But for us as pastors, we have to do that as well. Sometimes there will be people in, in the church who aspire to the office of pastor for these very reasons. This is why it's important that we have a process of observation and discernment and examination, right? We want people that aspire to the task. We don't want someone that just aspires to the office for the sake of the office. So it's important that we have these processes. We have to be careful that we're not simply in place to tell everyone else what to do. We want to make sure that we're there to serve. We have to be aware of the self-serving desire that drives us to long for earthly authority. This can happen in the home. This can happen in the church. This can happen in the workplace. It can happen in lots of places. Those who want to lead in order to control or to take over, to have their way, or exact vengeance or obtain privilege or to be made much of should never be allowed to lead in the church. But this is what James and John wanted. And this is what you and I are tempted to want, an office or a title to serve for our own glory, to be made much of. Brothers, we have to be really careful that even in our preaching, we're preaching for the glory of God, not for the glory of ourselves. This is why it's so helpful to understand that God works his supernatural work of salvation through ordinary means. So that the faith of people rests on God and not on us. This is why it's so important for us to understand what, what was shared in the panel. Just the reality that it's just the it's just faithful preaching of the word. The faithful preaching of the word. I, I love what John MacArthur said at, at some T4Gs ago. Just the fact that our job is to plant the seed and go to sleep. To plant the seed and go to sleep. We're farmers. We're planting. That's all we're doing. We're planting the seed, going to sleep. Some of us water also. And some of us have the privilege of seeing the harvest, but our work is a simple work. It is an everyday kind of faithfulness. Our work is the kind of work of, of thousands of daily steps of faithfulness for the glory of God. And that's why God has set all this up in this way. So we have to be aware of this self-serving desire that drives us to long for this kind of of authority, and, and brothers, let me just say, if that's you, because we are in Christ, because we have died with Christ and been raised with Christ, because we live by faith and now the life that we have is in Christ, we can openly admit our sin. And I wonder if some of us in our churches have to do that. I wonder if some of us in our homes have to do that. Have to go to our wife or our children and say you know what i've i have to confess i've just been trying to control everything i've been trying to control you i've been trying to control our children maybe we have to go before the elder board and say brothers i'm sorry this has been a heavy season it's been a hard season but you know what um i've just i've been harsh i've run over people and i need to ask your forgiveness because god is gracious and merciful he does forgive and and notice jesus gentle patient response in verses 38 through 40. jesus said to them you do not know what you're asking jesus didn't go berserk he gently draws them out by asking them questions This is a helpful method of discipleship where people are wrong or mistaken, just asking them questions to draw them out, to to help them answer their questions. And hopefully by, by the way they answer the questions and their logic, they realize their own thinking and it's exposed. But notice how Jesus approaches them. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus is seeking to lead them to the right answers by asking them the right questions. We know the cup is associated with the wrath of God. This is a cup that Jesus drank on the cross. Remember when he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Baptism is also associated with wrath being plunged under the waters. Think about the flood. Noah was saved through water. Water Indicating judgment, Jesus was plunged under the waters of judgment to save us from our sins. Now, clearly, the disciples are not going to drink that cup and they're not going to be baptized with that same baptism in the same way. But the point Jesus is making is he is going to ascend to the throne through suffering and death and resurrection. They too will be a part of Jesus' suffering and they too will suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. So how did James and John answer Jesus? Look at verse 39. And they said to him, yep, we can do that. And we do that sometimes, don't we? We don't really fully understand the the weight of what's happening. Yes, we are able. And again, notice how Jesus patiently shepherds them. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus gently shepherds them, helping them to understand the truth, drawing them out with the right questions to bring them to the right answers. And when they still don't get it, Jesus just plainly explains what's actually happening. They will suffer, but they don't have the privilege to sit at the right hand or the left of Jesus in the kingdom. That's already been determined, and it is for those to whom it's been granted. Now, where do the other disciples play in this? Well, they become pretty upset, don't they? Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, this is possibly because they share the same ambition also rooted in their own selfish desires. How dare they ask? You know, why, why can't we have the right and the left? So Jesus takes them aside for another lesson in discipleship. And this is what we see in verses 42 through 45. Here we see, thirdly, the self-sacrificing exercise of kingdom authority. Let's pick up here in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. This is the upside down, inside out way of the kingdom. Kingdom authority is not characterized by domineering control. Earthly authority, let me call that fallen authority, is all about power. It's about control. It's about domination. To lord it over and to exercise authority over, these words are intensified in the original. To to, to lord it over is to bring into subjection, is to gain dominion over, to subdue. To exercise authority over, to tyrannize. Authority is good because it is from God. God. And God has ordained and structured his world in such a way that his godly authority is displayed and he rules by his godly authority, even through governing officials in the home and in the church. Godly authority is to reflect God's good authority. But Adam and Eve cast off God's authority. They wanted to be their own authority. And as a result, earthly authority is now fallen and what we begin to see about humanity, we can begin to see in the curse to the woman where it says that her desire will be for, his hus- for her husband, but he will rule over her. It's this idea of control, isn't it? The woman's desire is going to be to control the man. The man's sinful response is going to be to control the woman. And what we see is that this is not limited to men and women. This is part of our fallen humanity. We, we all want to control. And the implications of this is that there will be some people in sinful response will seek to control, to tyrannize, to domineer over others. Some people will respond in kind. But some people will just be run over. But then the other reality is this. Ungodly fallen authority is not just domineering kind of authority. Ungodly authority is also passive. This is what we see in Adam in Genesis chapter 3 when the woman ate of the fruit and she gave him to eat. And he was right there. He was passive. He, he failed to protect the garden space. The serpent got in, and he failed to to do his job. And brothers, I would say to you that not only do we have a problem in the church and in the homes of of domineering, abusive-type leadership, I think we have a problem of passive-type leadership, A, a passivity in which we're not willing to step up, and we're not willing to lead, we're not willing to do hard things, we're not willing to do hard conversations. That, too, is a failure of leadership. And so we need to understand and we need to make ourselves aware of these two extremes of fallen authority and ungodly leadership. And so much of what we see today is fallen authority, isn't it? I mean, when we look at our elected officials and, and we're frustrated or disappointed, what, what are we seeing? And in some senses, we're seeing this attempt to control and to domineer. But then in other senses, we're frustrated because they're unwilling to act. But how many of you who are shepherding congregations, you see the same dynamic in your congregations? Over over decades of pastoral ministry, the main complaint that I have received from wives in the congregation is not about abusive leadership. That happens. But it's about an unwillingness to step up and lead in the home. And brother pastors, I do think that while there is abusive leadership in the church that needs to be addressed and called out, exposed, confronted, I wonder if there's even more passive-type leadership in the church where we're not willing to lead in a manner that Jesus calls us to lead. Kingdom authority is characterized by sacrificial service. Again, notice the upside-down, inside-out nature of the kingdom and this is what jesus is trying to teach the 12 about discipleship the principle is pretty simple kingdom authority is characterized by sacrificial service verse 43 but it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all this is counterintuitive isn't it this is upside down this is inside out this is not how the world thinks But this is how kingdom authority operates. Kingdom authority is characterized by sacrificial service. And Jesus is the example to follow. He is the perfect example of kingdom authority. Notice how Jesus grounds this principle in verse 45. For even the Son of Man. Now keep in mind, the Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. The prophecy of Daniel is a prophecy where the people of God are in exile, and the way that God encourages his people is by reminding him that these earthly kingdoms are temporary. In the book of Daniel, they just kind of come after the other. You have one kingdom, boom, it falls away. Another kingdom, boom, it falls away. Another kingdom, boom, it falls away, but... There is an eternal kingdom that is promised. And the Ancient of Days is going to hand to the Son of Man this kingdom, and the nations will worship him. And of this kingdom there will be no end. And we see in the New Testament the fulfillment of this kingdom in Jesus Christ. Jesus is this Son of Man. And this Son of Man who has received the kingdom, he leads and exercises authority by serving. Let me translate it this way. For even the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word serve there is a word that we translate deacon. Jesus, the King of all creation, the one who has received all authority, the one who has received the eternal kingdom, he came not to be served, but to serve. And how did he serve? He served by giving his life as a ransom for many. This is what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. Jesus is the son of man who receives the kingdom from the ancient of days and yet he came not to be served but to serve by sacrificing his life as a ransom payment to redeem sinful humanity. Jesus came to exercise kingdom authority so that the one would die for the many. Jesus gave his life to redeem Or to buy our freedom from slavery to sin. This is the irony. If we are followers of Jesus, just like Jesus is saying to his disciples, you will drink of that cup and you will receive that same baptism. We will suffer. Peter says this very helpfully in 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus has left for us an example that we trace, almost like children learning to write by tracing letters. And we do follow in the footsteps of Jesus. But brothers, can I encourage you in this way? If we follow Jesus, we will follow Jesus into suffering and death, perhaps shame and humiliation, perhaps persecution. But understand, we also follow Jesus into resurrection and glory. Into exaltation. And that's the beauty of kingdom authority. We will suffer and we will die, but we will also rise again. We will be raised in glory, Philippians 3, 17 through 21. We will reign with him, Revelation 5, 9, and 10. We will judge angels, 1 Corinthians 6, 3. But now, we serve by sacrificing for the good of others this is the role that we have so what does kingdom authority look like in our lives men those of you who are husbands you lead not by domineering over your wives but by loving your wives as christ loved the church this is why I started with Robert, J. Robertson McQuilkin's example because he is, he is a human model of what it means to love your wife as Christ loves the church, giving up his career, what he started in order to serve his wife in the final years of her life. But what does it look like for the home as dads, as parents? It's important that we understand that we have a a particular stewardship with our children. And again, I I just want to keep pushing us back to this idea that what we have in Christ is so much more than the ministries that we have. Because sometimes we're tempted to think that we're willing to sacrifice our marriage and we're willing to sacrifice our children for the sake of the ministry. And somehow we spiritualize that what we're doing is cosmic eternal work while we're neglecting our family. And so we have to be very careful. Yes, we will sacrifice. Yes, there will be times where we're away for a night or for a season, a few days, like like me on this particular trip. Or like Bobby away from his young children and from his wife. But how do we serve our wife? How do we serve our children? How do we constantly think about that kind of authority that serves in sacrificial ways? Those of you who are here who are not pastors, but maybe who are supervisors or bosses in your work, Uh, imagine the kind of testimony we would have in the workplace if those who are Christians in leadership, in vocations, in the world, led like Christ led. Instead of when something goes wrong in your particular business, instead of blaming others, you took responsibility yourself. One of the things that uh, frustrates me is when I see a, a, hear a coach on television and the team maybe didn't play well and maybe they lost, and, and the coach just completely trashes his players. And granted, I know there's responsibility on the players' part because they lost, but it just seems weak, doesn't it, when the leader basically blames everyone else for the failure and doesn't take any responsibility for himself. What if we did that in the workplace? What if, what if we realize we're the shepherd of our workplace if we are, in fact, the shepherd of our workplace? And we led in that kind of way. And brother pastors, what have we led in that way, in the church? What have we thought about, how can we serve the congregation? Not not what can we get from them, but how can we serve the congregation? How can we honor them? How can we sacrifice for them in good, wholesome, fruitful ways? But even church members, imagine a, a church that is characterized by an entire congregation of members who are always thinking of how can I inconvenience myself for the sake of others so that everyone is sacrificing for the good of others and for the glory of God. Christian leadership is an act of sacrificial love, not of Self love. It's a giving, not a getting. It's about taking responsibility, not taking over. It's about humbling oneself, not having a status. It's about blessing others, not gaining benefits. It's about making much of Jesus, not being made much of ourselves. And we make much of Jesus by giving ourselves away little by little, day by day, for the good of others. So how are you serving others? How are you sacrificing yourself for those that you lead? Just ask yourself these questions. Something I was very helped by, C.J. Mahaney has this uh, little thing he's put together called biblical productivity. And as I have tried to learn how to order my life and how to schedule my calendar, there are just two little things that he says that have really stood with me for a long time. He says, as he would sit down with his wife on Sunday afternoon or evening to schedule the rest of their week, he would just simply think of all his roles. What are my roles? I'm I'm a man of God. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a pastor. I'm a ministry leader. And just think about all his roles, all the roles that he had. As he's thinking for the rest of the week, and he would ask these two questions. The first question he would ask is, how can i serve those under my leadership so can you imagine if, if we were just to really plan for the week okay how can i how can i serve my wife this week how can i serve my children this week how can i serve my grandchildren this week how can i serve our congregation this week how can i serve our staff this week you know and just kind of go through your roles and just say how can i serve this week and then the second question is how can i surprise how can i surprise just just a matter of blessing just just really being conscientious in your thinking about others the good of others encouraging affirming others in their work if we were just to think about that for just a little bit david mathis says it this way mark this husbands and dads pastors and presidents The very essence and heart of leadership is taking initiative we otherwise wouldn't take and making sacrifices we otherwise wouldn't make to guide our people somewhere good they otherwise would not have gone. We embrace short-term personal difficulties for long-term corporate gains. We are among those who are learning that life's greatest joys come not in private comfort and ease, but in choosing what is uncomfortable and hard for the sake of others' joy. We are learning to find our joy not in the ease of attending to self, but in the toughness of attending to others. And brothers, I want to be very clear to you. I am preaching first and foremost to myself. I am a selfish person. I'm introverted in many ways. I am drained when I'm in public settings for a very long amount of time. And if I'm not careful, I could just sit at home and be alone and be very, very happy. I'm thankful that I married an introvert. Just the other day, just this Saturday, I was thinking about college football. And just the joy of sitting and watching college football all day. So what does my wife do? I go to the bathroom and she's tinkering. And I have to ask, Janine, what are you doing? And this is what she says. I'm changing our faucets. Our faucets are leaking. Now my wife is a godly woman. And so all she said was, I'm changing the faucets. The faucets are leaking. She did not say, and I've been telling you this for months. And so I'm having an internal struggle. What do I do? And so I ask, would you like me to help you? She says, of course. (laughs) And so we just spend the next hour or so changing faucets, and it's amazing how the leak stopped. And she had been at me for months to fix the faucet and to fix our bathtub. And so I thought, this is wonderful. She's encouraged. I'm encouraged because she's encouraged. And then I'm thinking, where did she go? She's out in the garage. She decides it's time to clean out the garage. And so I said, would you like some help? Yes. And it's amazing to me how selfish I am. How self-absorbed I am. How longing for ease and comfort I tend to be. And you know, at the end of the day, in the midst of all that, we got to watch Florida play South Carolina at 4 o'clock. But but here's what was interesting. At least twice, maybe three times, she said, you know what, Juan, you encourage me so much. Thank you for helping me with that. And you know, I thought to myself, why... Why was that so hard for me? Brothers, I know if you're like I am, if you are like I am, I tend toward self protection, self love. I tend toward comfort and I tend toward ease. And I have to fight by faith and remind myself. And again, I just, I want to keep taking us back to the gospel that Bobby preached. We have to be, we, I have to kill that old one all the time. And I have to remind myself who I am in Christ. I have to renew my mind. I have to put on Christ. I have to put on love. I have to put on sacrifice. And the good news is that I don't have to do that in my own strength. I don't do that in my own strength because it's not me who is alive. Right? And so Jesus has given us his spirit. And he empowers us by his spirit. He's already positionally given us Christ. Already the old man is died, buried, crucified. We are a new creation. But I have to, by faith, keep reminding me myself of that, understanding that I'm empowered by the Spirit to do these things and to obey and realizing that the fuel, the fuel for obedience is a love and worship of Jesus Christ. And when I love Christ... I will love his people. And I will love my wife. And I will love my children. And we have to constantly renew our minds. Robertson McQuilkin says, Duty can be grim and stoic. But there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me. Her warm love occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration I don't have to care for her I get to it is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person you see that's kingdom authority isn't it it is upside down it is inside out and it is a matter of perspective which is why we have to renew our mind I don't have to pastor a church. I get to. I don't have to change the faucets and change the tub and clean out the garage. I get to with my wife. I don't have to respond to that text from my 22 year old. I get to. And, beloved, this is the privilege of kingdom authority. For whatever reason, a mystery to us, we have been given this stewardship. And it is a stewardship, it is a grace. It is not anything that we deserve so that God would be glorified. He has put this treasure in jars of clay so that he would be glorified and be made much of and that we would not. And it's not it's not that we have to do this. It's how we get to do this. And this is the joy of serving our king. We, We don't have to be surprised by the abuse of authority in our world it's it's marred by the fall we're going to keep seeing that we're going to sadly keep hearing of spiritual abuse but we can't be characterized by that so let us resolve to lead with strong biblical convictions with courageous leadership that willingly sacrifices self for the good of others that's humble leadership that's kingdom leadership And may our leadership be marked by sacrificial service for the glory of our King and for the good of our people. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for everything that you are for us in Christ. Father, we confess right now before you that we have failed in so many ways. We have sought to be like the world. We have sought to lead like the world. And Father, there have been times where we have been afraid to lead, afraid to speak, afraid to act. Father, would you please forgive us? Father, there have been so many times where we have felt that I have to do this or I have to do that in pastoral ministry. Father, would you help us to renew our minds, to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, to refocus our perspective So that we no longer say, I have to do this, but we get to do this. Father, thank you for using weak vessels for your supernatural work. So that you would be made much of. Father, thank you for the grace of forgiveness. And so, Father, I ask that you would strengthen our brothers. That you would strengthen our churches. And that you would protect us from the evil one.